the Strange But True story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello my friends and a very warm welcome back to Things Are About To Get Weird. For this episode, episode 16, I wanted to do something a little bit special as it will be going live just a couple of days after my birthday. By the time you're listening to this, I will have just turned 32, which doesn't seem right to me as I'm fairly certain I just turned 21, but apparently my 30s are continuing to progress at the speed of light, so here we are. I decided that in celebration, I wanted to tell you all about one of my personal heroes in today's episode. Her name was Nellie Bly and she lived one incredible yet all too short life. She was the person who inspired me throughout my time at university studying for my degree in broadcast journalism and to say that she was a trailblazer in her work as an investigative journalist is a true understatement. There are lots of strangely fascinating details scattered through her life story and I really hope that you find Nellie's journey as interesting and hopefully as inspiring as I always have. Just a warning though that this story does contain mentions of mental health conditions and more specifically some of the awful treatments that patients used to be subjected to. There is also a brief mention of sexual assault and mentions of physical and mental abuse too so please do take note of that before we get started. Just before I launch right into today's story, a quick side note to say that if you enjoyed the Overton Bridge episode I posted a few weeks ago, you might want to keep an eye on the Things Are About To Get Weird Instagram page this week. I'm actually recording this a little bit ahead of time, so hopefully I'm not being too premature in saying this, but there could well be something interesting posted on there in the next day or so. But that's all I'm going to say. So without further delay, I am so excited to introduce you all to Elizabeth Jane Cochran, better known by her pen name of Nellie Bly. For ease, I'm just going to refer to her as Nellie throughout the story. Nellie was born on the 5th of May, 1864 in Armstrong County, which is in the US state of Pennsylvania, to her mother, Mary Jane, and her father, Michael Cochran. By the time that Nellie was born, Michael was a successful mill owner. He'd actually started out as a labourer in the mill, and over the years, he had worked his way up and up until he was finally in a position to buy the business and the surrounding land. The area became known as Cochrane's Mills and eventually Michael even became a judge. All of this meant that Nellie's early life was very comfortable and as her father had a total of 15 children, 10 from his first marriage and 5 from his second to Nellie's mother, I'm sure that there was never a quiet moment during the first few years of her life. However, when Nellie was just six years old, tragedy struck her family. Her father passed away very suddenly, and as it was so unexpected, he hadn't actually left behind a will. His fortune was split between his 15 children, which meant that they were all left with just a fraction of the financial means that they'd been used to, and the family was divided. Although Nellie's mother did remarry, 
her new husband was horribly abusive and thankfully she was able to leave and subsequently divorce him in 1878. Just a year later, at the age of 15, Nellie decided that she wanted to be able to financially support herself and wanted to give herself the best chance of being able to do so by receiving a solid education. Initially, her plan was to eventually become a teacher and she enrolled in the State Normal School in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which is known today as the Indiana University of Pennsylvania. But unfortunately, after only a few months, Nellie simply ran out of money. She was forced to leave the school and reunite with her mother and two older brothers in the city of Pittsburgh. But not before she had her first experience with playing around with her name in a bid to make herself sound more distinguished in her own eyes. She added an E to her surname, taking it from Cochrane to Cochrane. She was still going by Elizabeth as her first name at this time, and when she arrived in Pittsburgh, she began to work odd jobs to help make ends meet. None of these circumstances, however, deterred Nellie from her ambitions of being financially independent. I can completely understand why she had that fire within her. At such a young age, she not only went through the trauma of losing her dad, but her whole life was uprooted and I'm sure that she viewed self-sufficiency as a way to achieve that feeling of stability. After a few years of struggling and taking whatever limited offers of employment she could find, it was in 1885 that Nellie's life would change forever. One day, she was flicking through a local newspaper called the Pittsburgh Dispatch when she came across an article entitled What Girls Are Good For, in which the writer argued that a woman's role was to be a, quote, helpmate to a man and that working in the home was the only suitable path for a woman to take. Our Nellie was having none of it. Writing an open letter to the editor, she argued that there should be more opportunities open to women in the workforce, not fewer, especially considering that it was not unheard of for a woman to be the one financially responsible for her family. Her letter was brilliantly written and the newspaper's editor, George Madden, was impressed. After he appealed for the person who penned the letter to reveal themselves, Nellie didn't hesitate for a moment. At the age of just 20 years old, she marched right into his office and made it known that she was the writer. According to an article in the Indiana University of Pennsylvania magazine, Nellie presented him with an idea. If she could write a compelling piece about the subject of divorce, which was still very much a taboo topic at the time, he would give her a job as a reporter. She wrote the article and George offered her a job on the spot. It was at the Pittsburgh Dispatch that she chose her pen name and so Nellie Bly made her official entrance into the male-dominated world of journalism. And my oh my, did she enter with a bang. From the word go, Nellie never shied away from a tough topic and she never did anything by halves. There was no chance that she was going to sit quietly at her desk all day, keeping her head down and just going with the flow. If Nellie Bly was going to be a reporter, she wanted to live her stories and soon established herself as a new kind of journalist. 
an investigative journalist. She started by going undercover to research the terrible conditions and wages at a Pittsburgh factory, and she often wrote about the plights of working-class women too. After a while, though, she began to grow frustrated as she felt that she was only being permitted to focus on stories concerning women, which was very typical for a female reporter back in the late 1800s, and she pushed harder and harder to be allowed to expand her scope of work. It wasn't that she didn't want to report on these stories about women, but she didn't want to be limited to only those stories. Eventually, around 1886 to 1887, she was tasked with heading to Mexico, and during her months living and working there, she reported back on some of the corruption she observed from officials, and about the unacceptable conditions she saw that some lower-income families were living in. Although her frank and gritty writings would later be turned into a book called Six Months in Mexico, they did not go down well with Mexican officials, and she was actually forced to leave the country and head back to Pittsburgh. Not at all content with being assigned to the society pages upon returning to the newspaper, she decided it was time to broaden her horizons, and after resigning from the dispatch, Nellie packed her belongings and made the move to New York City. It was this relocation to New York that would not only propel Nellie's career to entirely new heights, but would result in the creation of one of the most powerful, shocking and impactful exposés ever written. Upon arriving in New York, Nellie had expected that there would be perhaps a wider range of opportunities for a female reporter, but these hopes were soon dashed as she was overlooked time and time again in favour of her male peers. Months went by, and though she was running seriously low on funds, she had discovered a new motivation to keep pushing for her dreams. Being financially stable was still a priority for her, but her first few years as a reporter had sparked something deeper. She wanted to, in her own words, reform the world, and do so by shedding light on the daily realities of ordinary people. Little did she know, but the chance of a lifetime for her to fulfil this mission was just around the corner. In 1887, she managed to talk herself into a meeting at the offices of the New York World newspaper, which was operated by the legendary Joseph Pulitzer, and it was here that she was offered a challenge. Nellie agreed to go undercover in what was then called the Women's Lunatic Asylum on what we now know as Roosevelt Island, but was then referred to as Blackwell's Island. Little was known about the true conditions inside asylums like these, bar the suspicion that they were generally not so great, and she was charged with gaining a first-hand insight into what life was like for those inside. But this was not going to be a straightforward task. There was no one on the inside who was going to help admit her to the institution. In order to gain access to the facility, Nellie would have to feign mental illness and submit herself to the asylum as a patient in order to experience what really took place inside. 
Now, before I go any further, I just wanted to interject by saying that the subject of Victorian medical and mental health practices in particular is somewhat of a special interest of mine and has been since I was a teenager. I know to some people that might seem a bit weird, but I'm hoping that given the name of this podcast, this isn't too odd of a thing for you to learn about me. For me, it began with a fascination with the musician Emily Autumn, and if you're familiar with her work, you'll know that a lot of her music and writings and art draw parallels between her own time in modern mental health facilities and the techniques and conditions found in Victorian asylums. From there, I very much went down the rabbit hole, and I've continued to research the topic ever since. When I discovered Nellie's work, it took my intrigue to a whole new level. Her 10 days spent inside the Women's Lunatic Asylum were wild in the most awful and disturbing way. Please do prepare yourself as things are going to get rough. So as Nellie wasn't able to just walk up to the front door and ask to be admitted, she concocted a plan to get herself committed to the asylum. It began with her taking a room at a nearby boarding house and altering her behaviour in order to arouse suspicion about her mental state from the owners. She deprived herself of sleep and would practice looking quote-unquote crazed in front of a mirror before building up to things like wandering the corridors and local streets, shouting and appearing confused. It didn't take long at all before the boarding house owners became concerned enough to call the police and Nellie was taken into custody. Now, bear in mind that she was, of course, acting and exhibiting behaviours that she assumed would, for a lack of a better word, pass for true mental illness. Also bear in mind that even though to our ears in 2022, this sounds really insensitive and unethical and it's something that we hope would never happen now, but we've got to remember that this was 1887. If Nellie hadn't employed techniques like these, there is no way she would have been allowed in. So whilst the doors were never going to just be opened for journalists, during this time, the list of things that could get a woman in particular admitted to an asylum as a patient was nothing short of shocking. There have been countless academic research papers written on the subject, including one I found from Catherine Pover and Ashley Tiernan from the University of Wisconsin. They introduced their paper by saying, between the years of 1850 and 1900, women were placed in mental institutions for behaving in ways that male society did not agree with. Women during this time period had minimal rights, even concerning their own mental health. Research concluded that many women were admitted for reasons that could be questionable. They go on to reference several common factors that could result in a woman being diagnosed as insane and committed to an asylum, including epilepsy, religious excitement, suppressed menstruation, depression after the death of a loved one, use of abusive language, overexertion and nymphomania just to cite a few. They also make it clear that the decision to refer a woman to a judge who could then choose to admit her to an asylum was often placed with her husband, brother, or even a male friend, and that women had very little, if any, control or power over this decision. Essentially, if a woman's husband or male relative needed her out of the way, 
it would be disturbingly easy for him to go in front of a judge and make whatever claims he could dream up about her behaviour in order to have her forcibly admitted. In Nellie's case, her journey went like this. After being detained by the police, she appeared before a judge and claimed to be an immigrant from Cuba who was suffering from amnesia. This is interesting, as in the research paper I just mentioned, the writers raise questions about the disproportionate rate of immigrants who were committed to asylums versus American-born women. Nellie may have been aware of this and added this element into her story in order to ensure she had a larger chance of gaining access to the Blackwell's Island facility, which is obviously awful in itself. Initially, she was sent by the judge to Bellevue Hospital, where he hoped they could get more information out of this mysterious woman as to her identity. It was here that Nellie got her first glimpse of how people with mental illnesses at the time were treated. The hospital patients were forced to live in disgraceful conditions and were routinely served food that had clearly gone bad. Nellie was examined by doctors and she reported their conclusions in her writings. Quote, positively demented, said one. I consider it a hopeless case. She needs to be put where someone will take care of her. She was declared insane and sent to the Women's Lunatic Asylum on the island. From the very moment she arrived, Nellie switched up her tactics. She transformed herself instantly from the confused and lost character she'd been playing to the real Nellie Bly, but she was taken aback to realise that the staff didn't bat an eyelid. In fact, they appeared to not notice at all. One of the first things that struck Nellie about the asylum was how incredibly overcrowded it was. At the time she arrived, she was one of roughly 1,600 inmates when the facility had only been designed for a maximum of 1,000. The asylum was dangerously understaffed due to budget cuts too, with just 16 doctors present to care for, in inverted commas, all 1,600 patients. Getting to work, Nellie focused on befriending a number of the women she was sharing the institution with, and their stories and experiences were truly horrifying to hear and see. They spoke of physical, mental and sexual abuse and acts of violence committed against them by staff. Being forced to take ice baths and then sit in their freezing, wet clothes for hours afterwards was a regular occurrence and led to many of the patients becoming ill. Like in the hospital, the general conditions at the asylum were dire, Mouldy food and unsanitary water were served to the patients, and human waste was left in all areas of the facility. Of course, rats were a huge problem too, and it's not surprising when you consider the squalor that the inmates were forced to live in. Many staff members viewed the women as animals, and they were abused for the amusement of those in power. Sometimes, patients would be tied to one another with ropes and forced to pull carts around like mules for no other reason than to provide a sick form of entertainment for those who were meant to be caring for them. It was commonplace for patients to be forced to sit in silence on hard wooden benches for hours upon hours, and Nellie wrote about these techniques, saying, "'What, accepting torture,' would produce insanity quicker than this treatment. Here is a class of women sent to be cured. 
I would like the expert physicians who are condemning me for my action, which has proven their ability to take a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up and make her sit from 6am until 8pm on straight backed benches, do not allow her to talk or move during these hours, give her no reading and let her know nothing of the world or its doings, give her bad food and harsh treatment and see how long it will take to make her insane. Which leads us to one of the revelations that will probably not seem surprising after everything I've just told you, but to Nellie was incredibly alarming. A huge number of the women in the asylum were not mentally unwell at all or at least not when they first arrived. Many were immigrants who had been placed into the facilities by authorities who felt that it would be easier than attempting to properly communicate with them, to try and help them through the struggles they were facing. Many of the American-born inmates were from incredibly low-income families or had no family to help them at all and had simply fallen on difficult times. It seems that if society didn't quite know how to deal with someone in a tough situation, it was much more straightforward to decide they were insane and send them off to an asylum than bother to help them get back on their feet. It's truly heartbreaking to think about, and when I first read Nellie's account of her time in the asylum, which we'll get to soon, it was incredibly upsetting and it still affects me deeply to this day. This story is strange but true in a different way to a lot of the others that I feature on this podcast because it's very uncomfortable to face. We would like to believe that even in the late 1800s, human beings would just not treat one another like this, but it happened. And up until people like Nellie came along, it was happening entirely behind closed doors. So after 10 days locked up inside the Women's Lunatic Asylum, Nellie's editor at the New York World arranged for her to be released. What she wrote about the experience of leaving the facility chokes me up every time I read it. She said, I left the insane ward with pleasure and regret. Pleasure that I was once more able to enjoy the free breath of heaven. Regret that I could not have brought with me some of the unfortunate women who lived and suffered with me and who, I am convinced, are just as sane as I was and am now myself. Fired up from the injustices that she'd witnessed and experienced herself inside the asylum, Nellie wasted not a single minute after she was released. She penned a series of damning articles exposing the conditions inside the asylum and the reaction was astonishing. She'd blown the lid off these mysterious facilities that existed on the fringes of society and revealed the barbaric practices that laid within them. The articles were collected together in a book called Ten Days in a Madhouse, which is obviously a title that was very of the time, but the language is reflective of this being in the late 1800s and it sent shockwaves through the US legal system. A grand jury investigation into the asylum was ordered around a month after Nellie's release. Although the facility was unfortunately tipped off as to their visit, and they managed to not only clean up the building, but transfer many of the women who'd been Nellie's friends and sources to other institutions, it simply wasn't enough. 
the grand jury believed Nellie's account and they pushed through a bill that would increase funding for mental health facilities. The equivalent of around $24 million in today's money was assigned to help improve conditions, staffing levels and treatments and many other significant changes were brought about too. As noted in a fantastic biography.com article, staff members found to have abused and tortured patients were removed from their jobs. Translators were assigned to help those whose first language was not English to ensure that they were being properly helped and much more stringent checks were implemented to stop people who were not in fact mentally unwell from being admitted to these institutions. Just a note, as I know that was all very heavy, there will be mental health resources linked in the show notes for this episode. I would strongly recommend reading 10 Days in a Madhouse if you want to learn more about Nellie's experiences. It's not novel length, it's under 100 pages long, but it's truly fascinating. I've read a few articles which note that the extreme lengths that Nellie went to in the name of getting the story was one of the first examples of stunt journalism, and I'm a bit conflicted about that label. I understand where it came from because, of course, what she did was not only incredibly risky and very, very brave, but it would have been shocking in society at the time. Remember, she was one of the very few female journalists out there charged with taking on such huge stories. And to say she went the extra mile for this one is an understatement. But for me, I think it's a shame to place a label that has some derogatory and tabloidy connotations onto something so groundbreaking. Think about it. This was a time where a woman could be locked up indefinitely in an asylum for being more fatigued than a man considered normal. Yet here's this 23-year-old trailblazing female journalist who takes it upon herself to bring the whole thing down from the inside. So, as you can imagine, this feat of journalistic achievement brought Nellie significant acclaim and she became one of the New York world's full-time investigative reporters. She continued to dive deep into the stories that highlighted injustices in the city and in the two years after her time in the asylum, she helped to shed light on everything from corrupt politicians and the abuses of women by male police officers to the terrible working conditions that many immigrants to the US were subjected to. But it was in November of 1889 that her status as a household name would really be solidified as she took on a challenge that would gain her recognition the world over. Nellie decided that she not only wanted to recreate the trip taken by the fictional character Phileas Fogg from Around the World in 80 Days, but actually beat the 80-day record. I have to say that I didn't actually learn about this arguably more famous mission of Nellie's until a couple of years after I read 10 Days in a Madhouse, but once I did, I just thought it was a beautifully bizarre addition to her amazing life story. Her mission was not only to beat the record, but to prove that women were just as capable of travelling solo to different corners of the world as men were. Nellie set sail from New York and started her adventure, documenting it by sending telegrams back to her office, which would be published as often as possible in the newspaper, 
and readers were captivated. There were games and contests published about her travels as readers guessed where she was or how long her trip would end up taking and the whole thing made her a celebrity. In the end, Nellie not only completed the trip but actually beat the fictional record by completing her travels in just 72 days, 6 hours, 11 minutes and 14 seconds. After returning home, she published a book about the experience titled Around the World in 72 Days, of course, and there was even a board game made about her exploits. Although her record was actually beaten just a few months later, it didn't matter as Nellie had become a star. I can only imagine how incredible it would have been for a young woman at the time to have someone like Nellie to look up to. Between 1895 and 1911, Nellie stepped back from the limelight and from her journalistic career. She had married a man named Robert Livingston Seaman when she was 30 years old. Robert was incredibly wealthy and actually owned two large manufacturing companies. They had met on a train travelling from Nebraska back to New York City and Robert, who was actually 72 years old, was so smitten with Nellie that they actually married within days of meeting. After Robert passed away in 1904, Nellie actually took control of his companies and during this time she actually patented various inventions relating to manufacturing because of course she did, she was a born overachiever. But more importantly, she made sure to prioritise safe and fair working conditions for her employees, as well as providing things like healthcare benefits and recreational activities. Unfortunately though, the company fell into financial trouble in 1912 due to some fraudulent activity by several dishonest employees and eventually became bankrupt. But rather than letting this blow defeat her, Nellie decided that after some time had passed, she would pick up where she left off in her journalism career. She would go on to cover some huge national stories, including the women's suffrage parade that took place in Washington DC in 1913. Nellie happened to be in Europe during the start of the First World War, and as a result, she became the first woman to report from the Eastern Front, writing for the New York Evening Journal as a special correspondent. From the very start of her career until the very end, Nellie continued to push boundaries and make history herself. Her whole life had been completely unconventional in the most amazing way, and although I'm sad to say that she did pass away prematurely, there's no doubt that she left her mark on the world. Nellie died at the age of just 57 on January the 27th, 1922, after suffering from a bout of pneumonia. Due to the financial difficulties she faced in her later years, she was initially buried in an unmarked grave at the Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, but in the late 70s, the New York Press Club made amends for this. They commissioned a wonderful stone tribute to be made in honour of Nellie's life and work, and it was placed near to her grave. In her obituary in the New York Evening Journal after she passed, Editor Arthur Brisbane remembered Nellie as the best reporter in America. I truly can't thank you enough for joining me for today's episode and learning more about Nellie and her astonishing life story. I know this was something a little different, but 
for me, what she achieved was just so wildly incredible. And I hope you found Nellie's story as fascinating as I do. I'm so curious to know whether you'd heard of her before listening to this episode. And if you had, whether you knew her more from her expose of the asylum or for her round the world adventure. So please do let me know. I would be so interested to find out. As always, a shout out to the fantastic sources that helped me with my research for this episode. There was, of course, Nellie's book, 10 Days in a Madhouse, as well as that great article from biography.com about her life and work. There was that article from the Indiana University of Pennsylvania from the fall of 1994, a great piece from the wams.nyhistory.org website, and another from womenshistory.org a piece from Britannica.com, as well as that fantastic academic paper that I mentioned, which was entitled Lunacy in the 19th Century, Women's Admission to Asylums in the United States of America. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, I would be more grateful than I could ever say for a quick review or rating wherever you listen to the podcast. It can be as super quick as just clicking those stars, or if you have a couple of minutes to spare, a written review would be incredible. Thank you so much to everyone who has already done so too. It truly makes my day every time I see a new one pop up. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, both through the main podcast page and also the private discussion group too. On Instagram, our handle is at Things Get Weird Podcast, and on Twitter, it's at About to Get Weird. You can also pop me an email if you have any of your own stories you'd like to share or a suggestion for an episode topic. It's Things Get Weird Podcast at gmail.com. A few people have asked me whether I'm planning to do any more bonus episodes, perhaps one for Christmas, and I am currently mulling over ideas about this one, so be sure to watch this space for more details. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. Thank you.